The scripture text for Pastor John's message this morning is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. The Lord said to Moses, Cut two tables of stone like the first, and I will write upon the tables the words that were on the first tables, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds feed before the mountain. So Moses cut two tables of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses made haste to bow his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in thy sight, O Lord, let the Lord, I pray thee, go in the midst of us, although it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thy inheritance. And he said, Behold, I I make a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been wrought in all the earth, or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with you. Verse 6 of Exodus chapter 34 is a revelation of God's name and an unfolding of the implications of that name. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, And then the unfolding. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In the last three Sundays, we've looked at a God who is, a God who is free, and a God who is omnipotent. And there's a connection between those three truths and God is merciful today. And we're going to come back to that at the end of the message, but there are two problems to deal with first in this text. And those who read carefully and try to put pieces together sense those problems, I think, when they read this text. And let me point them out and try to point you to a biblical solution to each one of them. The first problem is that in verse 7, the Lord says that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And it goes right on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Well, that's a problem because everybody in need of forgiveness is guilty. Who are the guilty he forgives And who are the guilty that he will by no means forgive? Now, 
in trying to solve that problem, what I did was try to ask, how did biblical writers understand this verse? Because this is a very frequently cited verse in the Old Testament. And I chose Joel and Jonah. In Joel chapter 2, the people have rebelled against the Lord. They are sinful. And the way Joel encourages them to turn to the Lord and gain courage and hope and forgiveness is this. He says, quoting the Lord, Yet now even return to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. And then he quotes Exodus 34, 6. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and repents of evil. So Joel understands Exodus 34, 6 to mean that there is encouragement, hope, and forgiveness if people will rend their hearts and not their garments. In other words, if they will turn from their sin and turn with all their heart to the Lord. So Joel's answer to the question, who are the people that will be forgiven iniquity, transgression, and sin is people who repent. And who are the people who will by no means be cleared of their guilt? And his answer would be people who refuse the summons to repent and rend their hearts. Jonah says the very same thing. You remember this strange prophet who went and preached to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, lo and behold, repented turned to God, away from their sin, rent their hearts, and sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah got angry that God had been so merciful. It goes like this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country, that this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art. And then he quotes Exodus 34, 6. I knew that thou art a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repentest of evil. So what's Jonah's understanding? Jonah's understanding is that this is a verse about the mercy of God which gives encouragement to anyone who will repent. And so the answer of Joel and Jonah to the question, which of the guilty will God forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and which of the guilty will he by no means clear, is he will forgive those who repent turn away from their sin and embrace mercy. And he will not forgive those who do not repent, but spurn the offer of mercy. Now let's go back to our text in Exodus 34, verse 6. That's problems number 1, or verses 6 to 7. Problem number 2 is... In the next verses, verse 7, the iniquity of the fathers he visits upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 says, The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not suffer 
for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. So the problem is, for those who try to make sense out of Scripture instead of just glossing everything over, is how can those two things be? How does he visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation? And according to Ezekiel, no son suffers for the sin of his father. And there is a way to solve that problem if you just attend to the context of each verse. The most crucial thing to see is that in Ezekiel, the son does not follow in the footsteps of his father. He turns from his father's sin and walks in the way of righteousness. But in Exodus, the children in view continue in the sins of their father. And this becomes evident if you just look at the surrounding verses. For example, in Ezekiel 18, the preceding verse, verse 19 says, When the son has done what is lawful and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall live. In other words, he's not going to die for the sins of his father because he's not walking in the sins of his father. But if you go back to Exodus and say, well, now what's the nearest parallel in the book of Exodus to chapter 34, verse 6? The answer is clearly Exodus 20, verse 5. The first meeting on the mount where it says almost the same thing with one slight addition. It says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So Ezekiel teaches that any child that turns from the ways of his father, the wicked ways of his father, will not suffer for those wicked ways, but will be forgiven and will live. And Exodus teaches that any child who continues in the wicked ways of his father will share in the punishment of the father. So, when God visits the, the father's sins upon the children... He does not punish sinless children for father's sins. What he does is simply let the effects of the father's sins take their natural course, infecting, corrupting the hearts of the children. And for parents like those who stood here this morning and me and many of you who love their children, this is a very sobering text. The more we parents let sin get the upper hand in our lives, the more our children will suffer for it. Because sin is like a contagious disease. When I have a disease, my child doesn't suffer for my disease. He catches my disease and suffers for it. Therefore, it behooves every parent for the sake of his children to pursue sanctification with all your might. I have seen so clearly how my children pick up my sins. It is very depressing. So slow to pick up on the few virtues and so quick to pick up on all my flaws. And God said that is an ordinance in his economy. Now, with those two problems, I hope 
behind us. Let's listen afresh to the message of mercy in this text, because that's what it's mainly about. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. There are two kinds of people that are very hard to help in pastoral counseling. One kind of person thinks that he is too far gone to be forgiven. And the other kind of person thinks that forgiveness is a snap. One kind of person thinks that he is utterly disqualified for the kingdom. The other thinks that he's a shoe-in. One kind of person thinks that God is unbendingly wrathful. And the other thinks that God is a pushover. One kind of person is blind to the magnificence of God's mercy. And the other kind of person is blind to the magnitude of his own misery and sin. They are very hard to help. And I know that I face people in both categories every Sunday morning. And the challenge of preaching, which is a much harder challenge than one-on-one counseling, is to minister hope to the one without giving any strokes to the other. Can you do that? You can't, and neither can I. But one person can. God Almighty by the Holy Spirit which is why people are praying right now through this service without the Holy Spirit taking the word of God in wrath and mercy threat and promise warning and comfort you will all hear it wrong you will apply the wrong thing to yourself unless God the Holy Spirit takes it and does the work for me I can state truths, but I can't make the truth that you need sink like a shaft into your heart. He can. And that's why we must pray as I preach. And I hope many of you have the power to pray while you look me right in the face. Charles Spurgeon used to say he prayed the whole time he preached. In my mind when I read that. I'm not, I'm not up to that yet. I work so hard to concentrate on what I'm saying. But sometimes I have felt that. Like I've seen somebody falling asleep. Or I've seen some stone wall face. And I've whispered a prayer. Oh God, awaken! Spiritually and physically. You didn't hear me say that, but I said it. Inside. Some pastors are so great, I think they could pray the whole time. I want to make explicit that the rest of what I have to say this morning is for the downcast. It's for the humbled, the broken, the hopeless, the discouraged, and those of you who think there's no hope. That your category of sin is outside the category of forgiveness. The rest of what I have to say is for you. If I wanted to make clear to my sons that I loved them, that I wanted to be their father, that I wanted to be merciful to them and stand by them, I'd start piling up phrases of mercy and grace. I'd repeat myself... 
And God descends to us to do just that with our English contrivances or Hebrew contrivances. And in this verse 6 and 7, he piles phrase upon phrase to get his point across that his heart is big with mercy. There are five pieces in this revelation of God's character that is that are, are precious to a needy heart. One, well, let me do it like this. Let me build a triangle before you. Picture a triangle here. Okay? And I'm going to put five words on this triangle. One at each base, two in the middle halfway up, and one at the peak. And they go like this, and I'll, you can read them from your left to right. Number one, he is merciful and gracious. And at the other end of the base of the triangle is number five. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Then move up the triangle like this, and we'll put two and four. Two is he is slow to anger. And four is he keeps steadfast love for thousands. And then the peak is he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, let's look at each of these. The reason, the point of the triangle is that one and five correspond to each other, two and four correspond to each other, and number three is a fountain that spills over in the others. Let's look at the one in the middle first. Two images come to my mind when I, when I hear God say to me, I abound. I abound in love. I picture a fountain at the top of a mountain that is just a bottomless spring of fresh water spilling over and running down in beautiful streams into the valley where forgiveness is needed down here at the base. Or I picture a volcano with rumbling love and warmth and power and zeal and mercy breaking off the top of the mountain and spewing forth in an endless lava of love. Surely when God says that he abounds, he wants us to know that his love is unlimited. There is no bottom to it. He's sort of like the federal government the federal government can meet all needs by just printing more money. But there's a difference. God's got gold behind the money. The gold of his love, which is infinite in value. The federal government is in a dream world. And God banks on the sober reality of infinite resources of love, backing up all the currency that he needs to produce to meet your need. I said earlier that there's a connection between the first three sermons in this series and this one, namely God's absolute existence, he is who he is, God's sovereign freedom, he has grace upon whom he'll have grace, and God's limitless power, he is almighty God, omnipotent. And the connection is this. Those three realities are the inside of the, of the volcanic mountain. God's existence, His freedom, His omnipotence is so full, so self-sufficient, it just explodes to get out. And the way it gets out is in mercy, flowing down upon His creatures. He doesn't need creatures to fill up the volcano. Like strike a match and toss it in to help God get hot. He is infinite heat 
and infinite energy and infinite self-sufficiency. And the truth about God who is infinite is that he spills over to meet our needs instead of us having to work to fill up his deficiencies. So the connection between the three messages is that today's message banks on the other three. And the reason you can have strong confidence in the mercy of God is that you believe He exists absolutely, He is sovereignly free, and He is infinitely omnipotent, and all those go together to explode in an overflow of mercy. If He were not God in all of His fullness, He might need you and thus manipulate you and put you to slave labor. In the middle of the triangle... As we move down the sides, come two and four. Namely, he is slow to anger and he keeps steadfast love. Now, let's start with that word keep. The word keep, which is different from the word abound. Abound means it's plentiful. Keep means it's it's uh, perpetual. It lasts. He keeps on loving. His covenant lasts. It just goes right on. Like Steve prayed, it's wide. It just lasts so long. But how? How if I'm a sinner? Answer the connection. He's slow. Slow to wrath. His wrath does not have a hair trigger. If God's wrath had a hair trigger, He'd blow me out of bed before I got up in the morning. I wouldn't make it to the breakfast table any morning. If God's wrath had a hair trigger. I'm 38 years old. And I know God's wrath does not have a hair trigger. 38 years of toleration. God's slowness to wrath enables His love to last and go on and on and on in His patience. He is very great in patience. And then we move down to the base of the triangle. Merciful and gracious and forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. How in the world can his wrath not have a hair trigger if he's a God of justice and sees sin all around him in the church? Why doesn't he blow us out of the water? Answer, because he has mercy and forgives sin. And if you're here this morning saying perhaps, well, yeah, I think that's probably true, but there are categories of sin or there are lengths of sin that are too big for me to get forgiven. And I submit to you, submit your opinion to the Word of God because the reason God chose all three Hebrew words for sin here, iniquity, transgression, and sin, is to make clear there aren't any categories of sin outside forgiveness. There aren't any lengths of sin outside forgiveness. There are no unforgivable categories of sin. And you all think, oh, yes, there is. The Bible says there is. But now you remember, those of you who are around my sermon last spring on the unforgivable sin. You can buy it in the, in the office. Let me sum it up in one sentence. There is an unforgivable sin, namely the unrepentable sin. And there are such sins. But if you can repent, 
you can be forgiven. If your heart is not so hard this morning that you can't bring yourself or that you can bring yourself to repentance, there's forgiveness. There are no categories and no degrees of sin so far gone that they cannot be forgiven. And that's why God said He is merciful and gracious and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so I close with this reminder and this invitation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into the world to verify, to confirm that that's the way God is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love a long time for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Jesus Christ came into the world to confirm that that's the way God is. And therefore, anybody here this morning, looking back on any kind of past, dare not say, it's too bad or too long to be forgiven by God. All you need to do is repent, turn from it, Face Jesus Christ and say, I trust you as my Savior and my Lord. And God will spill down the triangle of your life and cover the whole valley of crap with snow. And you'll be free forever. If somebody demands of you, how do you know? That's the way God is. Or perhaps your own conscience says to you right now, yeah, but how can I know that's the way God is? The answer is, Jesus lived it, and he died to confirm it and seal it with his blood. And that we are going to celebrate tonight at the communion table. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, I know there are people here today who need to repent and to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And I pray that they will feel what I've said as sweetness to their tongue. That they will find their heart being pried open by the mighty Holy Spirit. And that they will welcome into their heart these tremendously cordial words from God Almighty. May they not go away until they find their rest in you. And now may the grace of God our Father and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. And all the people said, Amen.